Christchurch, New Malden, 3rd of November 2019, 6.30 service. Becky Mills speaking in the series, Transformed by God's Love, the Widow of Nain. So, this is the first in a series of talks about four individual women who were transformed by God's love. And tonight I'm going to be talking about the widow of Nain that we heard about in our reading from Luke 7. It's one of the three coming back to life stories. The other two, of course, are Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. I expect you know that in Luke, women feature in the narrative more often than in the other Gospels. Luke portrays them as serving, ministering to Jesus' needs, passively listening, being taught, being healed, and let's not forget, excluded from the power centre of the Jesus movement. But in Luke, as in no other gospel, we can see the extent to which Jesus reaches out to invisible women, the silent sufferers who blend into the background, those women who are struggling on the margins of society. They grab Jesus' attention. He intuitively knows what their need is. He responds with tenderness and compassion, and their lives are, are transformed as a result. And the plight of the widow of Nain is very much a shared human story. To lose a son or a daughter must be one of the most heartbreaking things that can happen to you. We all know of people who've lost a child and, and perhaps they're, scar they're scarred for life. Perhaps it's something they never get over. Some of you here have worked through the pain of not being able to have children, maybe, or had, a, had to wait a long time for it to happen and can appreciate the barrenness of this poor widow's situation much better than me. She must have felt utterly devastated and alone. The past said, a dead husband. The present said, a dead son. The future said, an empty struggle. So just to give you a little context, it was the day after Jesus had worked an incredible miracle in the healing of the Roman centurion's servant who was at death's door in Capernaum. The centurion, with utter confidence in Jesus' ability to heal, sent friends to ask Jesus to just say the word and his servant would be healed. Jesus healed the servant at a distance because of his master's faith. Jesus was amazed at the faith of the centurion. He had the greatest faith he'd encountered anywhere. Jesus must have felt fully affirmed, strengthened, and brimming over with the power to heal as he traveled 25 miles to the tiny farming village of Nain, which means beautiful, because it has a stunning view over a green, fertile valley. But his first sight in the beautiful village was one of sorrow and death. Nain is nestled up against Mount Moray on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. The town itself was off the beaten track. Access to it was limited to a single road. This is a picture of how it looks today. That's not that, we need to look a bit further on, I think, Elizabeth. 
That's it. <laughs> Jesus followed by his disciples and a great crowd of people had a grueling climb of 1,300 feet from Capernaum to Nain. It would have taken at least a day, if not two. This means that Jesus probably had to get up very early or possibly even start walking during the night to be able to come across the burial procession the day after the healing in Capernaum. As Jesus approaches the village after this very taxing journey, a dead young man, probably in his 20s, was being carried out on a wicker stretcher. He would have been wrapped in a funeral shroud. Luke tells us that the dead man was the only son of his mother and she was a widow. And this poignant sentence speaks volumes. In those days, parents depended upon their children to care for them in their old age. When a woman marries, she's under the financial protection of her husband's family. And if the husband dies, then responsibility for her care passes to her son. Now that this widow's only son is dead, her future is deeply uncertain. Unless a relative comes to her rescue, she will be penniless and alone. And the idea persisted in Jesus' time that widowhood and childlessness was a punishment for wrongdoing. And that seems incredibly harsh to us today, but we tend to think people, for instance, who are long-term unemployed, street homeless and dependent on drugs and alcohol, that their situation is due to their own <coughs> self-destructive patterns of behaviour, rather than thinking they're victims of their circumstances, its circumstances, which of course they are. We're not exempt from making similar harsh judgments, are we? In this poor, isolated farming community, this widow might find herself spiritually, socially, and financially destitute, and a prime target for victimization and exploitation. Precisely at the narrow window of time when the villagers were carrying the widow's son out to be buried, Jesus meets the procession, and his heart goes out to her. Jesus senses the utterly desperate situation of this widow. The sadness, loneliness and hardship that she would face having lost her only son who probably wasn't far off his own age. A large group of villagers are gathering round her on the way to the burial place. The professional mourners, pipers and wailers are there making plenty of noise so that the poor widow can weep her heart out without making a spectacle of herself. The burial procession would be, making, would be making its way from the family home through the streets to a site a little way out of the village, probably a small cave in the side of a hill where the husband had already been buried. His bones would have been placed lovingly in a box, leaving the main shelf clear for the next burial. Jesus leaves his followers, walks up to her, and he says, just two words, don't cry. It might, have, it might have sounded harsh at that moment, telling someone not to cry, when all their hopes for the future had been crushed. You and I might say, don't cry, it'll be all right, to a child who is hurt to comfort them, because it's within our power to make things better. 
We can't say don't cry to someone who's just been bereaved because we're powerless to change anything. We can't make everything all right. We just want to cry with them. But Jesus knew he had the power and despite not having any previous connection with the widow, he wanted to make everything all right for her. The father of compassion and the God of all comfort is present in the person of Jesus at that moment. He walks over to the stretcher and to everyone's horror, touches it. The official bearers stop. Imagine what they must have thought touching the dead, even touching the official bearers of the dead made a person ceremonially unclean. And here is a rabbi, a teacher doing it. But the biggest shock of all, Jesus then speaks directly to the dead man. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sits up and begins to talk. And Jesus gives him back to his mother, fully restored. <coughs> the centurion's servant was healed the day before because of his master's faith. But in this story, the only person who has faith that the widow's son can be brought back to life is Jesus himself. Though Jesus loves to see signs of faith, in, in this case, he acts from sheer compassion. No one has asked for help. No one has petitioned on her behalf. Jesus acts purely on his own initiative and transforms her life with love. Can you, can you sense the gentleness, the empathy, the personal interest in her that this story reveals? Can you imagine the joy Jesus feels at being able to do this for her? He must have smiled as he saw her extreme anguish turn to unbelievable joy. Her son was alive. She would not be left alone. The tenderness and compassion Jesus felt for the unnamed widow must have been the turning point in her life. Before Jesus acted, she faced a bleak and frightening future. But with Jesus' act of bringing her son back to life, her future was transformed. Not only was the one she loved and lost restored to her, but she herself was now loved once again. Terror came over the crowd. They said, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to save his people. They must have been reminded of the dead child that Elisha brought back to life over 800 years before in the town of Shunem, which was just on the other side of the hill from Nain. They may have remembered the words in Isaiah 35, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come to save you. And that was exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus actively did what he had the power to do to alleviate the suffering of the poor widow. He transformed her life with love. And God's love transforms individual human lives and destinies. He values the people others don't notice. 
He connects with people the world would rather forget. God's love covers us, cleanses us and transforms us. Our own personal history, background and mistakes don't change his love for us or our destiny in him. Our transformation begins with personal repentance, but we as individuals are inseparable from our families, our communities and wider society. If our conversion doesn't ripple out into the wider world, then we're failing him, aren't we? Everything we need to live out our destiny in the kingdom has already been placed within us by God. His love, his promises revealed in his word, and his Holy Spirit to reinvigorate us and give us new life, new hope, new direction. Where God is taking us is as much about our journey as our destination. Our journey is being transformed into his image of becoming more like Jesus. God is in the process of reconstructing human nature. He's forming our character, directing our behaviour, influencing our emotions, fueling our thoughts and colouring our dreams. God is big enough and gracious enough to sort out our mess. And Jesus models for us what we need to do to help sort out the messiness of human life. All around us are people who are hurting. Some have broken marriages or estranged children. Some are jobless, homeless, penniless, socially isolated, depressed, chronically sick or terminally ill. There's something each of us can do. It may be very small in comparison to their degree of need, but that's not the issue. We can come alongside them, listen to their troubles, pray with them and for them. Remember, we are Christ's body on earth. He works through us to show his compassion and tenderness. We can help transform individual human lives and destinies too. We're sharing the gospel by showing God's redeeming and transforming love. And we can start with the groups that we run here at Christchurch. Half Shares is the group for widows run lovingly by Katie. And although widows today in the UK don't face the same financial hardship and social stigma they did in ancient times, grieving for a much-loved spouse, particularly after a long-term marriage, is one of the hardest parts of life. The grieving can be intense and last a long time. Some widows say they feel hemmed in by a wall of grief, and during this time they can't accomplish anything, mentally or physically. And I'm proud that as a church, we're embracing people from the local community who live alone. And I've had the privilege to get to know Betty, Joan, Joyce, Joe and Margaret from Half Shares at the Community Café. The Community Café is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be part of and to be able to come alongside those who are vulnerable. And I've had the real honour of getting to know someone who lives alone and is struggling with serious illness. And he comes to Grapevine in Grapevine Extra too. And he feels like we're his family. 
and we've been able to link him up with other social activities that are going on in the wider church community. We believe that by coming alongside, listening and showing love, we are really making a difference. If you would like to be part of this, helping with refreshments or training as a listener, do come and speak to Katie afterwards. Another way we can show God's transforming love is through the night shelter. The roving night shelter in February and March that we are part of at Christchurch is for the most vulnerable, those who've been street homeless on and off for years and historically have had problems engaging with services. I wonder how many of you remember Steve Millington. He won't mind me naming him as he's featured in the KCAH's annual report. And you can find a copy on the table in the lounge. He's been in the temporary night shelter here a number of times. He's been addicted to alcohol for over 20 years, been street homeless and, and been in prison several times too. He says, I was worried that everyone at KCAH would be disappointed in me and have a go at me when they found out that I had relapsed. But it was the complete opposite. I was welcomed with open arms. Now he's in rehab and absolutely transformed. He's been clean for a hundred days. KCAH turned my life around, says Steve. And some of you here were part of that journey. And what a wonderful thing to be part of. Please pray for him to stick to his resolve to be clean, especially when trouble resurfaces from the past. So to conclude, the life of the widow of Nain was transformed by God's love. She had a new future, a new destiny. Her only son was restored to life, who would love her, protect her and cherish her in her advancing years. We're all transformed by God's love. We all have a new future. We all have a new destiny in the kingdom of God. And this is as much about the journey as the destination. We don't live in sealed off compartments. We live in community with others. And as we are transformed more and more into his likeness, we naturally want to bring God's transforming love to others especially those struggling on the margins, the invisible people who God sees but the world would rather not. It's the most rewarding thing ever to see someone transformed by God's love, isn't it? Allow God to invade your life with his compassion, his tenderness, his comfort, his transforming love, and share it with others today. Amen.